0: Well, here we are. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Life in the Peloton brought to you by the Cycling Podcast. And I'm happy to be chatting with my good friend again, Lionel, to preview the new episode with a good friend of mine and a pretty famous voice in the commentary world, Matthew Keenan. So, welcome, Lionel.
1: Hi, Mitch. How are you
0: doing? Are you back in Europe? I am, yes. Back in the old cold depths of uh, the Spanish sun, which has been. Pretty nice, I have to admit.
1: A bit of a change from uh, down under, though. Uh, probably lost about 20 degrees Celsius.
0: I have, but I keep catching myself out. And every day I'm wearing big winter clothes, and the next day I go a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter. And actually, I think today I rolled out in short, no leg warmers, and a thin, a thin long sleeve jersey, and I was still regretting it. I should have gone arm warmers and a and a jersey because. Um, I was getting hot out there, it was 22 degrees and the sun was hot.
1: Well that just means spring's coming and that means the spring classics are coming of course um, but this episode Mitch tell me uh, Matt Keenan is a, a name that I am very familiar with um, but a voice that I'm perhaps less familiar with because um, most of the summer I'm away working on the races rather than watching on TV but I imagine a lot of people around the world will be uh, will instantly know Matt's voice as a uh, commentator on the Tour de France.
0: That's exactly right and I know his voice just that little bit better him and I grew up in the same suburb in Melbourne I didn't know him as, as early as he knew me he knew me as a as a four year old but I only rekindled with him when I got into cycling when I was 16 years old and from that day he's been a bit of a mentor for me right through the junior ranks right until I became professional and it's so great to touch pace with him when I'm over here racing away and I get to see him at a race in Paris Nice or at the Vuelta but then even especially when I'm watching back the races and I get to hear him commentate and then sometimes I, I know that he's sort of looking for me when I can't even find myself and um, putting a cheeky bit of commentary in so it always does help
1: so what was it about uh, Matt Keenan that made you want to sit down and uh, do an interview with him for the podcast
0: I think exactly like you said, he's a well-known voice now and he is across a massive spectrum of commentary in the world feed. And I thought, it's really interesting. He was a aspiring cyclist himself, a young guy who went across to Europe. And I thought, when in his career did he make that decision to go and be a commentator? And hang on, how do you become a commentator? When do you think you want to commentate a sport full time? So it just really intrigued me. And it's a question I never really asked him. Um, and then I just thought it'd be really interesting to find out what life is like on the road for a commentator is it the same as ours is it as grueling and it is pretty much so I think I can I can wrap it up there and without any more speaking we'll let Matt Keenan take it take it away Matt Keenan Well, it is pretty good that we're sitting back in Rosanna, considering you're a Rosanna boy, I'm a Rosanna boy, and we're back in the hood recording a podcast together.
2: This is where a lot of my cycling journey started because I grew up around about 500 metres away from the house where you grew up, and a lot of my early bike rides, I'd get home from school and I would come to a guy directly across the road from your house, Darren Campbell. Oh I'd yeah, meet yeah. Him at 4:30, your dad would come with us as well. And we'd ride up around mont park and graham carlson the mechanic he'd be there as well so i think you were probably four years of age i probably first saw you when you were four years of age and i'd go for rides with your dad who would tell stories that would never allow the truth to get in the way of a good one (laughs) he put so much mayonnaise on his stories your dad but when i was 14 or 15 i was wide-eyed on my bike and i thought they were the best (laughs) I can't believe
0: Dad was still like that back then, but obviously he was and I can see myself becoming more and more like Dad these days
2: and you think, uh-oh. But particularly with the Mo. And yeah. now with the Mo, people see you and they go, Junior Boots. <laughs> boots Docker."
0: Well, let's get into your history because what I want to talk about is we've got Matt Keenan on the podcast today and Matt Keenan is now, I would say, the number one English commentator for the
2: world. Would, you, would that be correct? in terms of distribution yeah. yeah in terms of them because i do a lot of work for aso the company that owns the tour de france so for the tour de france robbie McEwen and myself we go to about 48 different networks yeah in terms of you know number one in terms of who is the best that comes down to people's taste there can be a band that you like that i think's is horrible yeah, and there can exactly. be a band that i like that you know that you think uh, you've just got bad taste but in terms of distribution, yeah, probably. In with,
0: terms of the voice the, that the gets numbers. heard the most. Yeah, yes. so
2: Robbie and I, our commentary for the tour, we go into all the English-speaking nations, or networks in Africa. We go into New Zealand. We go into Canada. In the US, you've got two options. You can have it on NBC on the telly mm. where Phil Liggett is, is still the lead and he's the benchmark for commentary in, in cycling without question. And sadly, no longer with Paul Sherwin, now with Bob Roll or you can listen to NBC Gold online, which is ad-free, and that's with Robbie and myself.
0: Mm, ad-free. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to say is, okay, now you're at the, the pinnacle, the top of the mountain where you're, you're at, the, at this moment. Wind it back, right back to where we are in Rosanna. How does a boy who was cycling back then come through the ranks and then aspire to be a commentator of all things? Because I think, and from what I've understood about your past is, you had the aspirations as a lot of juniors to ride the Tour de France. Yeah. So then how has that morphed over the years into commentating the Tour de France?
2: I started out with the, the dream of winning the Tour de France because I was 12 years of age and I hadn't ridden a bike race yet and I didn't realize how hard it was. Mm. So actually I had a crush on a girl that went to Rosanna Primary School just across the road from your place and that's where you went to primary it school. Is, yeah? yeah. So I had a crush on her and her dad was a cyclist. Sadly, her dad was killed when he was riding to work in 1987 and then my mum and dad weren't too keen on me becoming a cyclist as a result of that, they wanted me to keep playing Aussie rules football, keep playing tennis, basketball, do any of that, but you are not riding a bike. No way. (laughs) So it took me three years of mowing lawns at old people's places, at tennis clubs and those sorts of things to save up enough money to buy my first bike frame. And then I got all the hand-me-down equipment from the guy, Jim Fawcett, who sadly was killed on his way to work. And it was at 15 years of age that I rode my first race. And I was really consistent. Track race, Thursday night, out at Northcote. Scratch race, last points raced last, <laughs> motor paste last, and I went home, Cockshaw 15-year-old, this is going to make for an awesome autobiography, <laughs> from last to winning the Tour de France. You had that idea then. Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, to win the Tour. I still thought after finishing last, my first three races, that I could still win the Tour de France one day. Yeah. You know, I wasn't going to let reality get in the way. And then, you know, you go through that journey of riding club races on the road and, you know, national champion, you know, national championships and so on, and pursued the dream by spending a, a season with a Dutch club, a season with a French club, and by the age of 21, reality had it struck that actually, you're not very good, the genetics, genetics kind of got in the way, um, then I came, came back, I did actually, stopped pursuing that dream at 22 years of age, I did year 12, when I was 21, I went back to school, to high school. I realized that I'm actually not that good. I need to get an education. So, I did year 12 when I was 21. But and just it,
0: to interrupt, just before you go on to the next phase, because I think it was a, a, maybe a little bit more of a harder decision than that, from what I understand, is because, yes, you spent some time overseas in Europe. And yes, from what I understand, that first year in in Holland was was hard. But you went back and you actually won a couple of races in France the following year. Yeah, or I the Or two years later.
2: <clears throat> I did, yeah. So, I, I did a... When I was 20, I did a season in the Netherlands. I think my best result was seventh in a in a Kermis in Belgium. Mm. Like, what an eye-opener. So I've gone from dreaming of winning the Tour de France to thinking maybe I could win a stage to, geez, it's going to be pretty hard to get on the start list. Yeah. It's going to be pretty hard to even you know, get a pro contract of any description. You know, reality really starts to set in. So that's when I came back and went to school and did uh, year 12 to try and get into university and get a degree and... It, get a it really didn't. Ma-
0: it really didn't make you hungrier.
2: Yeah, it, yeah. But then I came back and I set myself a bunch of objectives. I said I've mm. got to win this amount of races. I've got to finish top ten at the national championships. I've got to ride the Herald Sun Tour, which that and the Commonwealth Bank Classic were the two biggest races in Australia at that time. The yeah. two down under didn't exist. And to ride the Herald Sun Tour, you had to qualify by finishing top ten at what was then called the Tattersalls Cup, which is probably equivalent to what is the National Road Series now. Uh, and I finished fifth in that, equal fifth with Matt Wilson, incidentally, who wow. rode the Tour de France a couple of times. At the national championships, I was sixth, you know, amongst the elite category. That was also the first year there was under-23s at the world championships. I was the first under-23 in the national road race, but there was no under-23 national championship. So my mates take the mickey out of me as the unofficial first Australian under
0: 20, 23 Yeah, right. Nice. <laughs> I'll take that.
2: Uh, it, was, you know, it, was pretty, it was pretty cool. And then that, I said, okay, well, I've ticked enough boxes. I can justify another go overseas as an amateur. So then in 97, as a 22-year-old, I had another go in, in Europe as an amateur. And I set the target I've got to win four races to justify continuing to ch- chase mm-hmm. this dream. Uh, I won two, I had a couple of second placings, a third, and a few other top fives and top tens. But I hadn't met my objectives. Oh. So I said, okay, the dream's over. Wow. Go to university, get a real job. But I wanted to stay involved in cycling. And then there was two races that I really wanted to win still. They were just local club races. Yeah. And one of them was the Jim Fawcett Memorial, mm-hmm. the guy that inspired me to get into cycling, which I won the following year. And I wanted to win the Northern Suburbs three-day tour. tour. And I finished second that year. So I said, oh, I've got to keep going. So I went the next year. And I won it the next year, and that was the last race I rode. Wow. Yeah, and this you've is, won that race. I have, yeah. this. Will is, Walker's won that race. All the all the big stars. Yeah, the Sansonetti brothers who are famous in this area, both, you know, multiple Olympians, and they carried the flag for the closing ceremony in the 78 Commonwealth Games.
0: They've also won that race, too, and raced yeah. out
2: there. Yeah.
0: Uh, it's interesting because, and from what I've, in, in doing my little bit of research for you, I was trying to find, because I've known you... Since the end of that closure yeah, and that next phase of your life. And like you said, yes, we did meet when I was four years Got old, it. but I didn't really know yeah. you then. And what I wanted to know was the cycling history, because I knew I'd heard around the traps you'd ridden for Giramondo Cycles. And if anyone rode for Giramondo Cycles in Victoria or in Melbourne, you were someone. And I was like, what happened there? Why wasn't he able to go across? And back in those days, and you can correct me here, is as I've seen it, it becomes... The transition for Australia's, Australians to go across to Europe has progressively got easier in mm. a way. Yeah. In a way, it's got easier because that jump is a lot easier. But I think once you're there, it's a lot harder. Previous to that was to make that jump to Europe, to Europe was really, really difficult. But if you could suddenly get to Europe and make it because you had done all the hard work to get there, you're always going to stay there. And I feel, I was like, why wasn't Matty be able to make that jump? And I, I for, can tell you why. Yeah. I wasn't good enough. But I've, I've heard the, diff, the differ is that, you know, you came back and you're a new man when you came back. And I love that, that discipline that yeah. you had your goals set. And if you weren't going to reach those benchmarks, you didn't... Okay, you, you realized with yourself that I wasn't good enough and you cut it off early. A lot yeah. of guys aren't um, humble enough to do that. And they push on for maybe two or three years longer before they really get the egg in the face. Yeah,
2: I certainly could have gone a little bit further than what I did. But I didn't want to be a bottom of the food chain just get in by yeah. I wanted to be better than that I had bigger aspirations than that and if I wasn't going to be successful in that pursuit in life I wanted to be successful in something else nice and I also had you know aspirations of working within the political sphere and being a speechwriter and those yeah. sorts of things and a media advisor within that so I threw all my energy into that and then there was those couple of club races that I still wanted to win you know the reason for me not making it to become a pro cyclist wasn't a lack of opportunity and it wasn't because it was harder or easier then than what it is now i just was not good enough i have no regrets there's nothing i could have changed or done differently for me to have made it it's mum and dad's fault i don't have the (laughs) genetics and there's no shame in that right i learn a lot from it it's given me a great education in discipline and if you don't work hard you get dropped pretty early in a bike race if you work really hard you're half a chance and you can now apply that to everything else so i i came back and i threw that energy and that discipline that I'd learned from cycling into that next phase in my life, which was starting university as a 23-year-old. And then whilst all the other kids at university were there and, you know, enjoying university life, I was volunteering doing work in the job that I wanted after university Mm. so I could get some runs on the board because I felt like I needed to play catch up Mm. because I was going to be competing against people that were four or five years younger than me when i'm going for my first job so i needed to get some more runs on the board so i just threw all the things that i learned from cycling into the next phase in my life
0: and what were you studying at university was it journalism then
2: it was public relations Mm. with a major in marketing so professional spin doctor yeah right (laughs) (laughs) basically but i wanted to stay involved in cycling after i'd finished university and i was working at you know just in a government department writing speeches and doing marketing for, you know, various, I was in a sport and recreation, then I was in the Department of Education, then I was at um, WorkSafe Victoria trying to stop people from getting injured at work or help them get back to work after they were injured. There was an advertisement to be a co-commentator with Stewie Doyle at what was then Vodafone Arena, the multi-purpose venue in Melbourne. I thought that'd be pretty cool. That'd be a fun way to stay involved in cycling. So I applied for it. And had
0: you done any commentary before that? No. And you had- had you done any public speaking? No. Right. And so, what everyone fears, and I think most people have this, is public speaking's hard and it's, yep. it's scary. What, what, what made you want to jump into that?
2: Uh, just the
0: pure connection to cycling?
2: Yeah, just the, the whole cycling thing. And I like sharing something that I'm passionate about. Maybe I'm a middle child, I don't know, cry for attention. One of seven kids and I'm sandwiched sandwich there in the middle. There was the adver- advertisement. I thought, yeah, that'd be cool. And it was a voluntary job. Wasn't getting paid. And I went to do this interview and there was eight guys around the table. It was Cyclist International. And the other person that went for the job was Robert Crow.
1: Yeah, right. And Crow
2: is a fantastic guy and way better bike rider than me. Multiple Australian champion, Barcelona Olympian. Like, he'd beat me with one leg. He's walked out and I've walked in. And I've sat down and they've said, well, we've just had Robert Crow in here. <laughs> Uh, what can you possibly bring to the table that he can't because he was a much better bike rider than you yeah right fair question and then i responded with who was a better bike rider phil anderson or paul sherwin that's a stupid question phil anderson at that point was australia's greatest ever road cyclist certainly they said "Oh, ridiculous phil anderson i said yeah i agree way better than paul sherwin Mm. who's a better commentator paul sherwin or phil anderson and Phil had done a little bit of commentary at that time that Paul's, you know, the best broadcaster as an ex-athlete that, yeah. there's, that there's been so far. And they said, ah, oh, okay, we'll give you both a go. No. So both Crowy and I were <laughs> used on that first night and it was the Melbourne Cup on wheels and Richard England won it. Yeah, And right. I remember Lee Howard racing in the under-15s and he dominated <laughs> the under-15s that night.
0: Oh, I, I remember that, that Melbourne Cup. like, And yeah. Stewie
2: Doyle was the voice of cycling for me back then. Me too. Yeah, and you used to race, you'd race the track, and a lot of the time I'd race the track knowing that I couldn't win because I couldn't sprint. And I'd think, how can I get Stewie to say my name? <laughs> and Stewie Doyle, a lot of people wouldn't have heard Stewie Doyle commentate, but in my opinion, he's the best venue commentator I've heard. And I learned a lot Why? from
0: him. Why? What makes a good venue commentator? It's
2: different to TV and it's bringing the audience in and he was a real stage performer mm. being a tv commentator is different to commentating radio and it's different to being an mc or it's different to doing an interview and a venue commentator that engagement with the audience mm. and stewie's a he had the timber in his voice yeah and he engaged with the riders as well yeah. and he was awesome commentator he's a great guy. He's retired down in port arlington still rides his bike a little bit and plays a lot of golf Awesome guy.
3: Shoot shoot at the rear peloton. Cycling Podcast Team Car at the back of the pack, please.
1: That's the voice of Seb Piquet, Radio Tour at the Tour de France interrupting Mitch's conversation there to remind me to tell you that this episode of Life in the Peloton is sponsored by Hello Fresh. HelloFresh makes cooking from scratch easy and convenient, delivering fresh, quality, portioned ingredients to your door so that you can get on with cooking dinner and save yourself some time. And HelloFresh is offering you 50% off your first box and 35% off your next three boxes at hellofresh.co.uk with the code cycling. Now, I've been joined by Richard Moore, a familiar voice to listeners of the Cycling Podcast, and you're a HelloFresh customer, aren't you, Richard? Yeah, sorry to butt in here, Lionel. This is uh, unfamiliar territory
3: for me here. Have I been invited to do this because I'm, I'm such a renowned gourmand? Is that what it is?
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. What are you knocking up this evening?
3: Um, well, nothing. I'm waiting f- to be served my dinner actually this evening, but that's, uh, that's another story. Um, but I've been a HelloFresh customer for quite some time actually and uh, there are several things uh, going for HelloFresh. Variety, you get 21 weekly recipes to choose from, Save time uh, because you get just the right amounts of ingredients and very clear instructions about how to make your dishes. And they do a new uh, rapid line of dishes, which are ready in 20 minutes or less, which is handy. Um, they're convenient. Obviously, no planning, no shopping, no food waste because you get just the right amounts, as I mentioned. Um, and I really enjoy it. I've moved on to a vegetarian box. They've got some really nice vegetarian recipes, use the herbs very well. I've ordered veggie tikka masala for next week. So looking forward to that. It's quite spicy, um, but very tasty and uh, very generous portions as well, which is... Definitely something that I enjoy about
1: HelloFresh. Well, if you want to leave a bit more time for maybe a turbo training session in the evening, uh, but still want steady on, s- still want to cook yourself a fresh, healthy meal, then check out HelloFresh at HelloFresh.co.uk, and with the code Cycling, you can get fifty percent off your first box and thirty-five percent off the next three boxes.
0: Well, because run me through now, because the next phase for you, and this is where, I guess, I was introduced into where this part of your life. Yeah. And I met you down at this race called the Billanook Tour. And you were calling it, it was an under-19 selection race or even just a state race, a very low-level race. And I guess this is the the grassroots of making your way to where you are now. Yeah. That you had to go and do things like this. But... If you look back at it now and if you were to go to do something now, it would be a had to. But at the time, it probably was an opportunity and maybe even you felt nerves towards calling such a race or you weren't used to it or Mm. cutting your teeth in, something like that. What was
2: it like coming through? Well, that first time commentating, I was so nervous. Yeah. It was a Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening, early Saturday evening, seven o'clock start. I lost sleep Friday night. My Saturday was miserable because I was so anxious about that public speaking engagement but then the adrenaline from it I thought oh this is really cool I Mm. like this and then I had the ambition of maybe one day I could commentate on the Herald Sun tour that was my on television or live at the race just venue I just wanted to have that as my hobby as my ongoing connection with cycling whilst I did a real job to stay involved in cycling to be like Stewie Doyle and commentate on the Herald Sun tour and then I went and commentated on whatever bike race I could how else do you learn yeah and i would go down to warrigal commentate under 15s under 17s B grade under 15s scratch race is the hardest bike race in the world to commentate on (laughs) why so well because the audience is mum and dad right so you don't want to upset mum and dad secondly well i haven't done anything so there's nothing to talk about when they're just floating around and and there's no one there so there's no atmosphere and you feel like you're not talking to anyone so why on earth am i doing this It's a great learning ground. It's also way better to make all those mistakes and you always make mistakes. Every (laughs) single day you open up your mouth, you make a mistake. It's better to make those mistakes in front of a small audience than have your first time in front of a really big audience and make those really amateur (laughs) mistakes. Then, uh, you know, 12 months down the track and so on, really was enjoying it more and more. And I thought, actually, maybe I should have more of an ambition Mm. than just the Herald Sun tour. And I'd given up on the dream of going to the Tour de France, obviously, you know, a number of years prior. So I gave up on that dream in 97. By this stage, we're in around about 2003, 2004. And I thought, maybe there's more than one way to skin a cat. Sure, I'm not going to win the tour, not even going to ride the tour, but maybe I can go to the tour. So I threw myself into it. Let's see how far we can take this. So then, I volunteered at community radio every Saturday morning. Volunteered at every track race or road race I could get to, and that's when I was out at Billinook, standing on the side of the road with a microphone and you know one audio system that there was maybe a dozen people that could hear, just keeping mum and dad up to date on what was happening with the time trial, who was in the breakaway, etc. <laughs> uh, it's three or four years without really getting paid for any single event. Were that you I enjoying
0: went to. these low level sort of commentary gigs or was it sometime a bit
2: of a hassle? I was a bit of a hassle because I ended up I went for around about that period where every bit of annual leave that I had I took to go to a bike race and commentate on. Mm. So I went to the Bay crits where I was commentating on the Bay crits just doing the support event. Phil Liggett was doing the elite event, I just did the support event, but you know I had to pay for my own accommodation the first year to go and yeah. do it and I wasn't getting paid to do it but I wanted to go and I wanted to learn. Yeah. So it was the same as when you started racing. Yeah. You weren't getting paid to race when you first started racing. No. The same in commentating. I wanted to learn. What better way to learn than to practice? So the more I could like when you were a kid, the more you could race, the more you could develop. The more I could commentate, the more I could develop. So I went to all those events that I possibly could um, and it wasn't about the income because I had a real job that was providing with a reasonable income. But I wanted to see if I could work out another way to skin the cat and get mm. to the Tour de France. So, I threw myself in everything I could. And those smaller races are harder to commentate than bigger races. Yeah. Because they're athletes that haven't done anything yet. So, there's well, no it'd background would be hard to story. know who they are. Even. And you don't know who they are. So, rider ID is really hard.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> and so, you just mentioned there Phil Liggett because that would have been a nice little opportunity. Was that the first time you got the experience with Phil Liggett there at the Bay Crits?
2: In terms of working with yeah. him, yeah. So I was doing the first first year I did the support races and we didn't really have much interaction. And then the second year I was just down to do the support races and then Phil was, you know, listening and watching and he invited me up on stage for the, for the last stage to come and take with him. Wow. Then th- that was pretty cool. It was a big moment. Yeah. yeah. And then the next year, the third year I came back and he invited me to commentate the whole thing with me with him and he took a bit of a shine to me and he and i got along really well and then it was 2006 i got to do the commonwealth games the world feed for the commonwealth games that was my first really solid tv gig who was that with that was for the world feed so that was for any network that didn't send their own commentary team they took my commentary and i was working with anna wilson oh wow um who was you know former world number one Cyclist, she won the World Cup in 1999 and 2001, I think. Um, so her and I, we <laughs> got to work together. Uh, I, I managed to do the Sun Tour in 2005, so I achieved that. I commentated <laughs> on the Sun Tour in 2005. And for the I did TV there, but we did highlights packages. And I was the co-commentator, not lead commentator. I was a co-commentator. Yeah. For memory, David Colbert was the lead commentator. Okay. And I was the co-commentator, but not really as... An ex-cyclist. Even though I'd ridden the Herald Sun Tour, um, I don't go in as a commentator as an ex-cyclist. I come in as the journalist, as the commentator. And then you've got somebody that actually was a proper pro bike rider who is the expert.
0: And that's something I want to get into as well, um, the roles in commentary. And I want to get into the nuts and bolts of it. But before we get into that, from what I understand, your step across then to Europe was through that connection through Phil. Yeah. And he was able... Through, he wasn't able to commentate over in Qatar. Yeah. And then able, he was able to give you a position over there. Was that then the road to- It was. The path? Yeah. From Qatar, who'd you meet in Qatar that sort of started opening the doors to Europe for
2: you? Well, in 2007, the Tour of Qatar and the Tour of California clashed because yep. Tour of California then was still at the start of the season. Right. And I'd also done a few things with Paul Sheron without meeting him. I had a huge amount of respect for Paul and I used to host a radio show called First Off the Bike oh, on SCN, yes. oh. which was cycling and triathlon. And I you know, wanted to interview Paul. So I interviewed Paul a couple of times and one time was uh, similar to this. A, this is your lifestyle interview and then other, a couple of other times about what was happening in cycling at that point. So I developed a bit of a relationship with Paul before I even met him. And then ASO had contacted Paul and Phil to see if they were available to commentate on the 2007 Tour of Qatar. And they said, we're not. We recommend this guy. So they recommended me to ASO to commentate on the Tour of Qatar. And the strength of their recommendation, ASO had never heard of me. They said, okay, give him a go. And they sent me an email two weeks before the race. Wow. To see if I was available. Would you have to check annual leave quickly? <clears throat> I didn't even, like, <laughs> I just said yes. And then I went into the boss. <laughs> And I went into my boss and said, look, I've got this opportunity to do this. And he was awesome. He was really supportive. He said, go for it. And so I took that annual leave and went and did it. And then I got there and they said, for the last couple of years, we've used a different guy as the warm-up back to Phil and Paul at the tour. You know, that lead-in before Mm. 80Ks to go and you hand over to Phil and Paul. So consider this an audition for the tour de france and in case anyone doesn't know the
0: aso is the organization who run the tour de france and they run also sort of the races that they run the rest of the year are very very well run races they did the tour of qatar which doesn't exist anymore they also took over the the of Espana now they do Paris nice they just do a, a little branch of race not a little they probably do yeah. half of the calendar of racing and if you understand the difference between the organization of the races when you race as a rider you can just feel who's organizing the race the aso is very well organized even down to things with the the motorbike police the commentary whatever it yeah. is so like matt to, to put the weight on this is an, an interview or a, a trial run yeah to maybe work at the tour de france it was like whoa this is a
2: long format interview yeah so i got there really nervous obviously and the first day of, gone into commentary, and I was really anxious. And you your, commentating on your own is really difficult compared to commentating with somebody else. And because I was so nervous, I did a really bad job. And then afterwards, I said to them, oh, did you have a chance?
0: Why? Why was it a bad job? Now you can probably judge that. Did you know at the I was, time when it was When you're about- nervous,
2: you talk too much. Okay yeah you don't let it breathe you talk too much when you get nervous and you do as well if you're on a first date with someone you really like them like you talk too much yeah you need to shut up every now and then (laughs) give them a chance to talk and i i did that i spoke too much spoke too fast as a result as well didn't let it breathe there was no light and shade anyway i said oh did you have a chance to listen today no we had a few technical problems we didn't hear any of it oh yes bingo (laughs) awesome that's great okay and then by the end of the tour, <sighs> I, I got no feedback from them. And I thought, this can't be good. Got no feedback at all. And I thought, oh, well, that's not so good.
0: Well, I've had good experience anyway.
2: Yeah, it was fun. We got a look inside. Maybe the dream's over. Yeah. And I got home and a week later, I get an email to see if I'm available for Perry Nice. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> all right. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. So I knocked on the office door again. I need more annual leave. <laughs> In fact, I need leave without pay because I don't have any leave left. So I struck a deal with work to get some leave without pay. And then I went and did Paris Nice, And again, no... Is this how they operate, you've since found out? This is how TV operates. Oh, right. Yeah, they don't really give any feedback at all. They either employ you again, or they don't employ you again. No. That's that the feedback. Yeah. yeah, there's no, you need to work on, at least if you're a freelancer, it might be different if you're employed by a network. Yeah. They might work with you and say, we need to work on this, or this is, this is great, keep developing that. But as a freelancer, they either employ you again or they don't. Great. That's the feedback. Well, I guess it wasn't that good. Yeah. yeah. So I went to Paris Nice, and uh, I thought I was slightly better. It's a better race to commentate on, mind we, you. We use alone still. <clears throat> still alone. Still alone. And then uh, got got home, and a fortnight later, I got an email offering me a gig to go to the Tour de France in two thousand and seven. To do that job that you
0: said to to, to intro, well, to warm to up be the crowd amazing for the two rock star commentators of the time
2: yeah and then i so i went there in 2007 and then it started in london and but basically i was commentating until they went live on the telly nbc in the us that was when i would throw to phil and paul and it would vary how long i was on air for Mm. depending on how interesting the stage was Mm. so the more boring the stage was. You'd be on for longer. I'd be on for longer. If it was a really entertaining stage, I'd be, you know, done with pretty early on in the piece.
0: Well, let's get into the nitty-gritty then because you've mentioned a couple times and you brought up a really good point then. A long, boring part of commentary, let alone doing that with someone else, you can talk off each other, but let's get down to commentating on your own. What is that actually like? And run us through how hard that can be to continue to make that feel like you're sitting in a box on your own to make you feel like you're engaging and talking to someone because you're actually just talking to a screen into a microphone aren't you
2: yeah and when you're first starting it's a lot more difficult i think i'm better at it now than what i was then but the expectation of the audience is so they've listened to phil and paul for at this point for 35 years so that's the expectation that you can walk in and be at that level but you don't walk into your first day on the job or your you know five years of experience into a job and you're the CEO you know it takes a long time to get to that level but for a TV audience that's watching that's their expectation yeah and on your own is a lot more difficult than when there's two of you and calling the part where there's hundred K's to go and there's a two-rider breakaway on a flat stage is a little more difficult than calling the sprint finish or attacks happening in the mountains in yeah. terms of the level of you know how dynamic you can be in your commentary and funnily enough, a lot of the criticism I got early on was uh, you're not conversational enough. I'm on my own. It's hard to be conversational. Yeah. But there was this American baseball commentator who I studied thing on him. There was a really good article done on him and he only commentated on LA Dodgers games. Commentated on his own. But he had a researcher that he worked with his whole career and that researcher was in the room with him when he was mm. commentating. So he was commentating just making eye contact with that guy, hand signals to that guy. And then as a result of that, everybody sitting at home watching. Felt so like I'd, they
0: were talking to him.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So, I've tried to do that, but it's...
0: Envision it, that you know, or you've actually got someone in there?
2: He's not envisioned, but... No, but like for you now, when you say now, i to... I try to... I, I envision that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I don't have anybody in there with me, but I imagine that I've got somebody in there with me mm. that I'm talking to. And on the training note then,
0: is that something you you just mentioned then you've researched a guy like him who was someone mm. on his own. Coming through, was there, was there a process of, I need to train my voice, I need to learn how to speak like a commentator? Because like you mentioned in your first time in Qatar, in Qatar you got running and you started talking and you, you might have spoken in slang Australian and things like that. Are, the, are you conscious, probably not now, but were you conscious in those
2: early years of, I need to develop myself, my commentating voice. Not so much my voice, how I sound, but certainly conscious of not using slang and not using cycling slang, hmm. particularly during the tour. You can get away with a bit of cycling slang in, say, the Tour of Flanders yeah. or Paris-Roubaix because it's a hardcore cycling audience, Yeah, but not during the Tour de France. Because it's a whole bunch of people watching that. that That's the only bike race they watch. Mm. So you can't refer to something as a grandy. Yeah. Because they don't know what that is. And you've got to explain what a grand tour is. And you've got to use other sports as a reference point. Mm. Cycling's got three grand tours, like tennis has got the four grand slams. Mm. So you're simplifying some elements of it. But at the same time, you've got to make sure that you're providing information for the hardcore cycling audience as well. Which is where commentating with a guy like Robbie McEwen is perfect because you want to get the nitty gritty, Robbie's your man. Exactly. And then as soon
0: as he's had his (coughs) spiel, you can break that down if necessary while you're listening to him. Going, okay, they're probably not going to understand that. As soon as he finishes talking, I'm just going to explain that bit.
2: Yeah. And you know, my, my wife is not much of a cycling fan at all, but she's got a bit of an interest in sport. And that's often the filter I put on, put on is, as I'm listening to Robbie, would Cinta know what he's talking about? Mm. And if my answer is yes, let it roll. Let it roll. The answer is no, it probably needs a little explanation. I'll give her that explanation. Mm. So I kind of use her as that litmus test. To whether it needs a bit more clarification or not
0: coming back to then yourself and say a person like robbie run us through the positions in say a commentary team and you mentioned that earlier you were like look i am an ex-cyclist but i'm not that person in the commentary box i'm a commentator on the events of what's happening on the day play by play per se and maybe robbie is a special Comments, an ex-pro. Is that how it works? Yeah,
2: exactly. So a good role model for me in that regard in commentary is a tennis commentator by the name of Mary Carillo. Okay. So she's one of the best commentators in the world. As a tennis player, she was a much better tennis player than I was as a cyclist. She won Wimbledon mixed doubles with John McEnroe in around about 1980 or thereabouts. I think she made top 100 in singles. But she's a commentator as a commentator, not as an ex-player. So when she can make pretty much all the calls from a technical aspect as any of the ex-players, but the audience don't know of her as a tennis player. But they know of John McEnroe as a tennis player or they know of Martina Navratilova as a tennis player. So when she's with them, she's got all that knowledge to ask them the right questions mm-hmm. and draw that knowledge out of them. Yeah, People that are watching i have no credentials as a cyclist and what i did on a bike apart from the three-day tour of course yeah the northern suburbs three-day tour which doesn't quite count when you're at the tour of <laughs> france so i don't have any credentials as a cyclist but i've spent enough time on a bike to know the right questions to ask so i think i'm well positioned to draw the information out of whoever it is that i'm commentating with I could say exactly the same words as Robbie McEwen, but coming from him, mm. they've got way more weight, yeah. far more credibility, because he's done it and I haven't. Totally. So that's more interesting to the audience. So we've got that role, and it's a bit like when when you're racing, I'm often the lead out. You know, I'm the guy that's peeling off with 200 meters to go, getting Robbie in the right position to Put tell the audience it, yeah. he's the the knowledge that he's got about what needs to happen at this point. So it works a bit like you know tandem team yeah. a madison partnership in effect
0: and and what makes then say like like you said to what makes robbie's comment have so much weight is that preparation that build up that build up of knowledge that you're giving everyone yeah. that he can just come in and say what he needs to say because now everyone is understanding what he's saying yeah if he just says it out of context you and i know what he's talking about but no one else does yeah interesting
2: and the other element is that people get this impression that robbie Well, some people do in it, the preparation that Robbie just rolls into the commentary box, hasn't done a whole lot of preparation, just gets in there and he's Mr. Relax and just talks. He is a pro Mm. and he is really well prepared. He actually does a lot of research. He makes it look as if he hasn't. He works pretty hard to make it look as if he hasn't done quite as much research as he has. But you've also got to keep in mind, he's done 30 years worth of research to get into Mm. that position. We'll be commentating on the Tour of Flanders. And he knows where the potholes are. Yeah. He knows that it looks on paper like the best line through this corner is on the right, but there's a pothole there because he used to train on that road all the time. You can't get that from me doing research on the internet. You can no. only get that from being Robbie or whoever it is that's ridden that course so many times. The course goes past his in-law's house. Yeah. So that sort of knowledge comes through years and years of being out there on the bike. And it's really hard to put a dollar figure on that and how valuable it is
0: we talking about research. What's your research then? What's your preparation for the day? Because when I listen to you and even just hearing you in this podcast, the things you know off the top of your head still just bewilders me, you know, like, and I'm thinking, is that right? Yeah, how could he know that? Is it that you just have an amazing memory or is it you just do more research than anyone else and make sure you know the stuff before you go on camera?
2: It's a combination of both. When you are really passionate about something, you remember it. So if you're if you're really into something and you're just learning it anyway, and it's not like you're doing research. So often I'll be on the couch and my wife will be watching something that I'm not interested in, and I'll be playing on my phone. And she'll say, is that work or or pleasure? And I'll be looking at, you know, some news from cycling results or pro cycling sets. I'll, I'll say, well, it's both. Yeah. So I'm just always looking at cycling information. And if there's something interesting, that I find somebody's had an injury and they're recovering from something or other, I'll update the database on that rider. So, I've got a database on every single world tour cyclist and everybody that's ridden the Tour, the Giro or the Vuelta in the time that I've commentated on. Wow. What is that, just like a Word document or is it a... Yeah, I've got one, I've got a minimum one page on everybody and it's not the results. (laughs) So, because you can get the results off pro cycling stats. It's the stuff that you can't easily find on the internet. So I'll listen to your podcast regularly and there'll be a little snippet from Sam Buley or Luke Durbridge or something or other that you can't find on the internet and I'll add that to my notes.
0: Mm, Interesting.
2: So there's those- When did that start? When did you start developing this database? Day one or- Day one. Really? Yeah. You had this idea. You're like, I need a database. Yeah. So one of the things that I used to do that I used to put on the screen in once, after that first time at the Tour of Qatar, when I knew I spoke too much. I put a note on the screen one point at a time light and shade add value to the pictures mm. so the first one was like when you start something finish it the second one was just you know keep it one point at a time like let it breathe mm-hmm. let it yeah, give it a bit of oxygen and don't tell people what they're seeing they can see it tell them why they're seeing it
0: okay give us an example of that last one
2: um so you you'll be on the front you're riding on the front for 100 kilometers chasing the breakaway so, I can tell people that Mitch Docker's on the front and he's riding at 38 kilometers per hour. The brakeway's at three minutes. Okay, so what? Why is he doing that? Well, Mitch Docker's on the front because you've got. Um Who's, the, who's your best sprinter? Uh,
0: well, or we had Sasha not. Modelo yeah, this Modelo, year. Modelo this
2: year, yeah. Because Sasha Modelo has a chance to win the stage today, and this is going towards his hometown. And you know, normally it wouldn't be Docker who's doing the lead out, but he's been a little bit... Normally Doc would be involved in the lead out, but he's on the front today because he's been a little bit sick, so he's not going to be able to do that job later on. <laughs> so you're trying to explain why that person is, is on the front, what yeah. their job normally is. Um, the purpose of them chasing uh, who else should be chasing, but they're not. Maybe the team wants to, you know, negotiate with that team to get somebody else up do there to help. Do you
0: speculate in that, in that situation <clears throat> there? Speculate, for instance, you might not even know why I'm on the front. You're like, okay, Mitch normally does the lead outs. I don't know if he's been sick. I don't know if he's crashed. Why else would he be there? I'm just going to have to speculate. Or do you try and stay out of that just in case you put your foot wrong?
2: No, if I don't know, yeah. I'll say... I'll, I will say that, that, um, you know, normally mitch doesn't play this role normally mitch plays the role of being involved in the lead out i'm curious to see him on the front i'd something like to else know is why. going something on. else is going on yeah yeah i won't say unless i've spoken to you and i know that you're sick or something or other hmm. i won't make that assumption i'll leave it as a question like this is odd have
0: yeah. you ever been caught out by making assumptions and in a situation like that and then it's really caught out in the media, but just yeah. caught yourself out. For instance, you go, look, this is going to be a nothing stage. There's not going to be any attacks. And the next thing, one minute later, there's a big tack and the whole race explodes. You just look like an absolute idiot.
2: Oh, there's not an example that I can think of, but absolutely there would have yeah. been. And that's the beauty of sport is not being able to predict what, what's going to happen. And that's one of the challenges of commentating is you, you're, you make mistakes every single day. Mm. And you're doing it in a public forum so there's always going to be people there to correct you you've got to have thick skin obviously mm. uh it's the equivalent to if you've got a normal job and you get a performance appraisal every six months but you're getting a performance appraisal every, every single day, day yeah. in a public forum
0: continually, continually. at the time
2: you're yeah. getting tweets come in and whatever yeah. so i when i'm commentating I, I turn notifications off so i don't look at it because i know when i've made a mistake yeah and you get you know you get plenty of free advice when you're in this job as well once people stop talking about it, well, then you know that the sport's not very popular and we're dying away. It's good Mm. that there is that level of engagement and interest.
0: Talking about the, the difficulties of it, this is something I think a lot of people don't understand, and I've only come to understand the last couple of years, is that you commentate from the end of the stage in a truck at the finish line and inside that truck has probably got i don't know how many commentary teams but you all get a small booth with a small tv which seems really back backwards i find it hard enough picking out riders that i know that i race with have raced with for five or ten years on the big screen television at home but you're picking them out like this that and the other and from a small screen run me through what is like commentating and why you guys have to be commentating from the side of the road and not just in some studio either back in Australia or even in somewhere in France?
2: We'll go to the rider ID in a minute. Okay. Firstly, the logistics. We commentate on the finish line when I'm working for ASO. So we're doing the host broadcast. And then often, say for the Walter, for example, we commentate from the finish line, then we go to another truck and we do a 26-minute highlights package. And then we do a three-minute internet package. So you've got to be on the ground to work with the broadcaster that's delivering that. And that's going globally but then for the spring classics for example i only do those for sbs so i do those from a studio in sydney so that can kind of it can happen anywhere but do when you I'm... find it more difficult then to get in the atmosphere of the race does it yep. help being at the race? it helps being at the race so when with paul sherwin who i greatly miss absolute legend when i was at events and he would often be doing the commentating for nbc from new york When I was at Paranese or the Walter and he'd be in New York, he and I would talk on FaceTime each day, and I'd walk him along the finish line, show him what was happening in terms of the weather, wind direction, let him know who I'd spoken to at the hotels and so on. Hmm. And then he'd be on the ground for the Spring Classics. He'd do Roubaix from on the ground, Liège from on the ground, often Flanders on the ground. He'd call me and I'd be in the studio in Sydney, and he'd do the same for me. So, wow. we'd swap, swap that around. So Just would, to get yeah. a little
0: taste of yeah, it, yeah, tiny yeah. taste. Yeah. But yeah.
2: You know, externally, people probably saw me as competing for their space or whatever. But he really looked after me. And I hope that I did a bit for him in return as well. Mm. So, that's the logistic side of things. In terms of rider ID, I'm watching it with a different intensity that you're watching it. So, you're watching it from your couch, whereas I'm watching it with the purpose of trying to identify guys. But I'm also going there with a strategy for how to identify them. So there's eight riders on the team in the tour. And I should know before the race starts what pretty much everybody's role is. So you've got eight riders on a team. Let's go to Lotto Soudal, for example, this year. There's a breakaway up the road where well, you know Caleb's not going to be chasing mm-hmm. because he's a sprinter. You know Roger Kluger's not going to be chasing because he's the lead-out guy. Um, you know that Tim Wellens isn't going to be involved in the chase because he's a chance to win stages when it comes to uh, medium mountain stage. Likewise with Tish Benun. So there's four guys eliminated yeah. from the chase already. Um, Thomas, Thomas De Gant. he's either going to be at the back of the peloton or he's going to be in the breakaway himself. And he's pretty easy to spot because, you know, he's got pretty strong stubble. So you, you can get through that process of elimination. And you generally know who the guys that's got the job to do the chasing. At Quickstep, for example, it's always Tim De Klerk when he's in the race who's doing that early chasing. So you eliminate it, who's not gonna be chasing. And it normally comes down to one or two guys early who's doing that chase. And I know the order of the lead out train for each team, who's second last to drop, and then who's the last guy to peel off before the sprinter comes through.
0: And once it gets hectic, you're just calling it from memory then. And then
2: you just, from memory, that jogs your memory when you yeah. see the
0: taller guy, that must be Kluger. Correct.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you got that height difference between, you know, who's playing what role. And then you know what color shoes people are wearing. Mm. Why did you have to change from those red shoes, man? (laughs) That made it so easy to spot you. (laughs) It did. Esteban Chavez is easy to spot despite his height. Everybody on the Mitchelton Scott team, they've got the black and gray Scott bikes. But he's his blue for the Esteban Chavez foundation. So, he's easy to spot.
0: It sort of helps in, a I can see in a reverse way too, that... You see him, so you know it's not someone
2: else. So, you're not trying to commentate on him, but
0: you know it's not... Okay, I've eliminated someone that I'm
2: trying to identify. That's exactly right. Uh, You know the guy that has really long socks or high socks. You know the height differences. Generally, if there's someone really tall or really short within a team, Mm. uh, that makes it easy to spot. Some guys have got super long necks, high necks, glasses. The Yates brothers have been really good. They've been wearing different shoes, Different shoes. one yeah. with the red shoes, one with blue shoes when they're in the same race. Uh, other than that, it's pretty hard to spot the difference between <laughs> those two. Uh, so you've got all those elements to help you identify who's who.
0: Well, run, now run me through the grueling part of the job. And I think this gets underestimated because like you mentioned before, you're over at Paris-Nice in France. You live here in Australia, in Melbourne, like we mentioned, but you're over at Paris-Nice, you're over at the Tour de France. And then you're, you're also over, over at the Vuelta de España. They're the races that I know off the top of my yeah. head. But there's other races in between. It's a lot of time on the road. I've got two kids now. Yes. How is that time on the road, the grueling day-to-day of a commentator?
2: I do about six months of the year in a hotel bed. Thank heavens for FaceTime. Mm. So, I try and talk to my kids before in like breakfast time and dinner time. You know, wherever I am in the world, but their breakfast time and their dinner time. And that makes a huge difference having FaceTime. Yeah. It would have been really difficult to do this job in the 80s. Yeah. Or, you know, even when I started doing it, 2007, before my kids were born, it was a lot harder to have that level of communication because, you know, the Wi-Fi wasn't as good no. than in hotels. So you'd go a few days at a time without talking. possibly talking to my wife. Um, but my kids don't know any different because I started doing it before they were even mm. born. But then by the same token, when I'm home, I'm fully engaged. So I've had a normal job and you'd leave home at 7.30. So if I had that normal job now, I'd be leaving home when the kids are just getting up having breakfast. That's really functional time with the kids. And then I'd be getting home 6.30, 7 o'clock, sort of have dinner, go to bed, five days a week. And then on a weekend, I'd want to try and do something for myself as well. So you've probably got a day and a half with your kids kids proper, good Mm. quality time. Whereas now, sure, I spend six months of the year away from them. But when I'm home, this morning, I've taken my daughter to swimming. I watched her for 15 minutes at swimming. Then I came home and I took my son to school as well. And now I'll get to go and pick them up from school, Mm. which I wouldn't be able to do that if I had a normal job. But I can do that sort of thing for six months of the year. And any other work that I do, such as writing articles or so on, I can do that when they go to bed. I can Mm. structure my day around that. So I think... I end up spending more time with my kids than if I had a normal job. Um, it's just not in the traditional format.
0: Yeah, and so, and so like you said, it is grueling, but in a way, if you if you structure around right, yeah. it's the right life for you at this moment.
2: Yeah, um, I'll take it back to the tour though. So I went to the tour in 2007, right? For the first tell time. Me. But I still didn't feel like I'd made it to the tour, right? In terms of skinning that cat. The time that I felt like, okay, I've achieved that goal of commentating on the tour was the first time that I got to call stage finishes at the tour. So it was 10 years of just calling the first 10K sometimes, the first 30Ks, up to around about 80 to 100Ks to go, was when Robbie and I got to call the stage finishes, which for the first time that was in 2016, that's when I felt like I'd worked out a way to skin the cat.
0: On the back of that, do you feel now that you really do understand the sport as a cyclist, in terms of you're there, you're watching it, you're in the heart of it, for instance, when you're at the Tour de France, you're talking to pros, you're talking to directors, you're commentating, you're watching the, the race every day. Do you feel like if you physically could do that tomorrow, step in and race at that level, understanding the way that we're racing in the peloton?
2: Uh, or do you have a different feel that's for a, that's a- I've never thought about it from that perspective. Yeah. Put me on an e-bike and see if I can survive within the Peloton. Yeah, because like, I don't think anyone else knows it
0: unless they're racing it. Yeah. Right? But you're the closest yeah. thing from not being a professional that I think would understand what we do.
2: Yeah, I think I've got a good understanding of the sport, which enables me to ask those right questions from my various co-commentators that have been there and been in the Peloton. And in terms of my respect for you guys that are in there, I always say I've covered X amount of tours. Whereas, you know, others say that, you know, I've done, Robbie has done mm-hmm. X amount of tours where I haven't done any tours. Yeah. I've covered the tour and it's, it's vastly different. You know, I think, um you know, I'd trade covering 10 tours to have ridden one. Uh, I don't know about that. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I've just got an enormous amount of respect for anybody that makes the start line. Yeah, I don't know. I can't answer that to be, I can't answer that. Yeah, I think I was reasonably competent in terms of being able to handle my bike as a cyclist. And I just didn't have the engine, you know, but riding but with an e-bike. On, on that then, have you noticed a change
0: in the way racing has changed from the, the year you started commentating until now? Or have you not noticed a drastic change in the way people are racing?
2: Uh, it was dangerous 10 years ago, it was dangerous 20 years ago, and it's dangerous today. Yeah. Um, not necessarily on the danger side of yeah. things, but just on the... It's there's there's more. I feel like there's more control mm. now um, than what there was previously. But I always also feel like there's more desperation now. Being in the you know that the front really early on on the piece. One of the most fascinating stages this year at the Tour de France was the stage into Albi, where um, Welt van Aert won. And there was that one roundabout, mm. and the Francis Dijoux, Ge- the FDJ team, went on the wrong side of the roundabout, and Thibaut Pinot lost a minute and fifty-one seconds. Mm. It feels like there you get a, you can be sacrif- you can lose more for one small mistake now than you could maybe fifteen or twenty years ago. Mm, what are your thoughts?
0: I think. Has it changed for you from yes, when you entered the peloton? It has, and that's where that question was coming from. Is that. The peloton has drastically changed the way it's been racing and i'm not going to say for better or for worse but it's just just changed it's just just different different. yeah and it's it's not necessarily the way i like to race and i think that's because i grew up racing bikes differently and when Mm -hmm. i came into the peloton i learned the pro scene that way and it's evolved into this new way of racing which i don't love which is young guys now have the ability or Being told they have the ability, the physical ability, to do whatever they want. Yeah. And when I came into the peloton, whether you had that ability or not, there was an element of learning your trade and coming through the ranks. And yeah, there were a few that just went straight through because I was so, so bloody good. Peter Sargon, for example. But nine out of 10 guys paid their dues and rose to the top when it was time. But what you often notice now is guys are getting told that they've done it on an Ergo, they've done it on Strava Hill, that they've got the same watts as Chris Froome. So in that last corner, they need to be on Chris Froome's wheel. And the reality is they could be racing these guys for 5, 10 years. But what they're being told is it doesn't matter about that. Just do what you need to do in this next kilometre right now and worry about the rest later. So that makes for a much more different feel in the bunch.
2: Yeah, I can understand how that is stressful for you. Yeah. But it's more entertaining for us. Totally. Like, from a broadcast perspective, to see Remco Evenepoel at 19 win San Sebastian this year is off the charts. Yeah. For a 22-year-old, Egan Bernal, to win the Tour de France is just phenomenal. So from a broadcast perspective, as promotion of the sport, to have the new talent coming through is really exciting. I get your frustration totally.
0: And also, and and like I said, I understand that's the way it's going. Mm. And that's also exciting for a guy coming through. And this goes back to what we were saying before about what I was saying about Australians going across. I think that jump across is a lot easier now. People have made that pathway, so there's a lot more opportunity. And that goes with the way of racing. I think there's a lot more opportunity for young guys. They've just got to find a way to take it. Yeah. I think, whereas before, if you were able to finally, the opportunity was much harder, but if you made it, you were there. Yeah. You'd prove yourself and you'd made, you'd prove to yourself and prove to the rest of the world, I can be here. I think it was a lot harder to fail. And so, that's the that's but the difference. We, from
2: within the Peloton though, if you're a young guy and you push your way in and then you make a mess of it, do you get put back in your box the same way as you did 10 years ago? No. So, there's, no, there's not the enforcers within no. the Peloton to put you back in place? There's no
0: enforcers now. And to a degree, the enforcers are getting pulled up from people, I guess, people not respecting people,
2: the enforcers. Okay.
0: People are like, well, who are you? I'm a better rider than you. It, that The respect doesn't have any weight anymore.
2: Yeah. And do the riders care at all about what's said in a public forum, about what journalists write yeah. about them, about what people say on social very, media? Very,
0: very powerful now. Because really?
2: That can influence people's behavior in the peloton.
0: It does because people are thinking, well, if I say something or do something or helmet bop someone, that's going to get captured. Yep. That's going to get put on Instagram. That's going to get put in cycling news. And I'm going to have to deal with that. Deal with that. Make an apology, blah, blah, blah. And that could affect my career. So that stuff's just drifted away. Whereas before, I'm not saying it got overlooked, but it was part of racing. I guess it's a bit like cricket with the sledging. Yeah, or some of
2: the stuff that would have been said on the field in the eighties. Exactly. And that was just
0: part of the game and people accepted that was part of the game. Whereas now it's open, there's microphones everywhere. You just can't anymore. And like cricket, it's, (laughs) it's evolving.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, Tom Steele's is still remembered as much for his throne of the bid on as he is for any of his victories.
0: Yeah. It was crazy, wasn't it? All, yeah. You know, C- Cipollini's helmet yeah. bopping, chasing guys down yeah. and telling him it's not time to attack yet.
2: Yeah. And like, I, I remember- I'm fascinated that the, some riders in the peloton are influenced by what will be said about them in a public forum, whether it's in mainstream media, cycling media, or by spectators. I think it comes back to what you said with Stewie Doyle. The
0: commentator being seen on TV, Mm. doing something like that is a positive thing. And so that's going to be commentated on. It's going to be presented in the media. Mitch was doing something. He attacked up the Murr. Doesn't... Okay, and then Tom Boonen won the race. Yeah. But Mitch Docker attacked on the Murr. Two massively different results but still copped media, if yeah. you know what I mean. Vice versa, on the negative side of things, so-and-so won the race, but Mitch Stocker was first dropped or threw his wheel at the mechanic or whatever it is. So, that yeah. cops it. So, you're just sort of looking for ways you can be, I guess, seen yeah, okay. or not seen. Yeah. And I think you know that anyway because, you know, and you've got to be smart like that as a pro, I think, on both
2: ends. Does team management talk to you about it at all? Yeah, if you, if you do something that brings bad publicity as they perceive bad publicity to the team does management pull you up
0: yeah like i think because uh,
2: they're protecting the sponsor and the exactly
0: brand. it's a lot of sponsor correct stuff you probably get pulled up more so for incorrect sponsor use okay um unless you're doing something drastically bad in the media you mm. know i think racing wise i'm probably going to re- retract that not drastically bad actually if you're mm. just doing anything that's perceived as wrong yeah you know, whether it would be fighting or whether it would be abusing someone in the bunch or whether it would be doing something yeah. wrong off yeah. on the bike, running a red line in Melbourne, you know? Yeah.
2: It's funny how one incident can stick with you. So, Jan-Luca Brambilla got kicked out of the Vuelta a few years ago because he and uh, Ivan Rovny had a couple of swings at each other. And now yeah. when I see him, I can't help but every now and then blur it out, boxing Brambilla. Yeah. but Just because it rhymes with Brambilla and he got DQ'd from the Vuelta for... <laughs> swinging a punch at Rodney but exactly. he's done plenty of other fantastic things on the bike but you know i fall into that trap as well of every now and then when i see him because it sounds colorful and it rhymes boxing brambilla
0: i don't know i guess i can't remember what the image of cycling was before but i don't think it had a rough
2: image i think it was just it has a tough image because it's a tough sport yeah but tough in a positive sense yeah in the same way as the footballers in afl australian rules football that you probably admire and I admired as a kid, wasn't the one that was getting in the fights. It was the one that didn't take their eye off the ball going into a dangerous situation. Mm. And they're the cyclists that we admire as well. Yeah. Not not the one that is, you know, carrying on and abusing other people trying to play tough. The one that can put themselves in the hurt locker.
0: And I think maybe that's where the respect with a guy like Tom Steele's, Yes, he was remembered for the, the bidden throwing, but he backed it up with his yeah. results. And, and, the same as Cipollini.
2: Yeah. You know? And oddly enough, I, Tom worked in commentary for a little while before he was back at Quickstep. He's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. He just had one moment where the red mist came down mm. and we've all lost it every now and then. Tom's a fantastic guy.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, t- to finish up here, where do you see the future in commentary for you?
2: Hopefully me still sitting on the finish line with Robbie McCune at the Tour de France for a few more years to come. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It's a real privilege to have a public voice on something that you're really passionate about. And I don't for a second take it for granted, the position that I'm in. I want to keep doing it. And when I actually left having a real job to do commentating full-time, and I made that transition in 2010, first Tour de France I commentated on was 07, went full-time as a commentator midway through 2010, The nerd in me felt the need to write a business plan. And the mission statement in that business plan is to infect as many people as possible with the bike bug. Mm. And that's what I wanna keep doing.
0: How then on the final point, to those aspiring commentators out there, what's your advice you can give to them coming through the ranks if you wanna end up where you are?
2: Take as many gigs as you possibly can. Work, do some work in community radio, do stuff that's, do written material as well. Do radio, do a podcast, commentate local track events, uh, just get runs on the board. Work really hard, but you'll enjoy it.
0: Great, mate. Good to have you
2: here. Thanks, mate. Cheers.
1: Well, Mitch, it's probably fair to say that Matt Keenan's experience of the Tour de France is closer to my own. Um, than it would be to the riders um, because I'm in I'm in the media as well, so I kind of I kind of know the rhythm and routine of of Matt's day, um, and I suppose his self-effacing uh, nature at the start of your conversation there, admitting that he wasn't um, good enough to get into the sport that he loved. I I think there's a lot of that in press rooms and commentary boxes, not just in cycling, but in a lot of sports. If if you're not good enough to actually make it into the pro ranks uh, the the next best thing is is working in the media i think
0: one the thing that i loved about that was is what i think a lot of people struggle to do and i'm i'm assuming i'll probably struggle to do it is finding that moment to actually call it and it sounds like to me that he just went i've got to nip this in the butt call it before it lingers on too long and start a new career path and ultimately that's got him to where he is now which is such a It's such a mature thing to do at that age when not just to go, you know what, I'm going to just keep plugging it out and try and do this as long as I can. So that's what I took away from that the most is when you feel it and when you know it's time, make that call and have, have the balls to go for it, which I loved with Matt.
1: But also uh, having the the confidence in his own ability and the perseverance to just seize opportunities and give it his best shot, knowing that everything was kind of contributing to him making another small step along the journey. A lot of parallels there with um, trying to crack your way into professional cycling as an athlete as well, I think.
0: Totally. I think he took on that mentality as a pro cyclist or as a cyclist. He just pretty much morphed that into his next career path. And use the exact same principles that i use and that i'm sure every other professional cyclist use kill or be killed and just went about it and clocked up his hours and got to where he wanted to do and ticked off his goal actually to be at the tour de france which i thought was a funny little way around you know it's like at the end of the day i've still done the tour so really really cool to hear hear that i think
1: And a lot of people think that the commentary gig is an easy one. I mean, we can all sit at home watching on TV and, uh, you know... uh pick holes in the commentary when particularly if if the commentator misidentifies a rider and it's it's so easy when you're sitting at home on your sofa um i I don't want to go into too much detail here because it's a it's an experience that still makes my cheeks flush slightly red with embarrassment but i actually once had a a tryout for a commentary gig um with a broadcaster and i was absolutely hopeless now i think my rider identification is pretty good when i'm sat in the press room at the races or when i'm watching on tv i can normally tell you know who people are, you know. I can tell the jerseys apart. I could, I've, I've kind of got a lot of information tucked away. I can, I can, could have spotted your mullet, Mitch. A um, little bit more difficult now you've you've shaved it off, but. In the commentary box itself actually doing the job live no chance to edit out those mistakes uh, it's a it's a pretty high pressure job especially when calling those sprint finishes and I thought that the way that Matt explained uh, the way that he and Robbie McEwen work in the commentary box almost as Matt Keenan being the lead out man for Robbie McEwen in a commentary sense um, as the sprints unfold I thought that was really interesting they've obviously you know dovetailed well together and I think a lot of those commentary partnerships um, rely on on building up those kind of natural relationships between those partnerships.
0: And I think also what we even touched on, but it's underestimated the conditions those guys are in to commentate. And like you said, the rider identification, it's just blows my mind. Like I, I, I ride with these guys the whole time, year after year, I'm in the peloton with them. And then when I watch at home on my, you know, four, four metre wide flat screen TV... I can't even pick him out either so it's it is it really is amazing and you know I think it's it's just a fantastic thing that he was able to make that jump like I said and just it seems like he's really living the dream and he's on the road that many days a year like we are but still loving it and as you can see with a guy like Phil Liggett there's potential to go on there for years and years and years.
1: Well, yeah, the the accolade, the voice of cycling, um, you know, it's going to be there for, going to be up for grabs at some point, isn't it? Um, but uh, it'll be a, a bit of a a peloton of commentators all jostling for that one, I'd imagine. Um, but that was a cracking listen, Mitch, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, the, you know, the fact that you're basically brought up in the same neighborhood, uh, got a lot in common, obviously, and uh, that really came across.
0: Yeah, it did. It was it was fantastic. Like, we were recording in my mum and dad's house, so that was really special. And, you know, of course, I'm going to give it a plug, but we both had Life in the Peloton. Well, I definitely had a Life in the Peloton t-shirt on. We had a Life in the Peloton mug there. So if you haven't gone and got it, you've got to go and get some merch. Go and check it out there at the Etsy store. Um, there's some new stuff coming out, so... Um, I know a lot of your listeners have gone down there and checked it out because there's been a bit of a spike in the, uh, in, the, in the movement of some merchandise, which has been fantastic. So I'd love to see some photos, put them up on Instagram. And if you want to send me any feedback, I'd love to hear from you guys. Send me an email at contact at life in the peloton or even just sling me a message on our Instagram handle because in two weeks time, we've got Luke Durbridge coming up. We're going to be talking about the classics. Opening weekend is coming up of the classics. And I really love, last year we debriefed the opening weekend. We worked out who was going well, who wasn't going well. We talked about the nitty gritty. So I'm looking forward to chatting with him about that again this year. And I want people to send some questions in. Send some questions in, what you want to know about the classics, what you want to know about, whatever, Luke Durbridge himself, myself, what it's like to be a pro cyclist. And we'll have a go at answering them. It's always fun chatting to Luke every podcast we do.
1: Well, uh, anything, uh, anything goes when it comes to questions from the listeners?
0: Anything goes. Like, try and keep them classic sort of base. This is going to be a more of a spring classic sort of episode about cobblestones and whatever. But if there's something itching there and you want to know, feel free, send it in, and we'll have a go at answering it.
1: Well, if you get a tricky one, a real bouncer of a question from somebody called Nigel Ernie, it's nothing to do with me, Mitch, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> no
0: problem. We'll give that a whirl. Give that one a miss, maybe.
1: Well, we'll be back with another episode of Life in the Peloton in a couple of weeks' time. As you said, Mitch, that's with Luke Durbridge. Um, Do go back and check out the previous episodes that have already been released. Jimmy Whelan was episode one, wasn't it? And Andre Greipel was a real cracker for episode two. So if you haven't listened to those yet, do go back and check those out.
0: Great, guys. and, And I look forward to putting up the next episode in a couple of weeks' time. So until then, stay tuned. I'm Mitch Docker you have been listening to life in the peloton the producer of this episode was will jones the music in this episode was composed by pete shelley thanks mate